0: we could do a bit of a Bible study. Would be okay? Uh, here's the thing about scripture. The Bible's a really, really old book, in case you have not noticed. It's a really, really old book. It's come to us via multiple translations. It's written in a different culture in a different era by multiple people. It's, it's complicated. It's complex. It's rich. It's deep. It's glorious. It's difficult. It's all the things. But it's really, really important. Scripture is really, really important, and I understand that in a room like this, that there'll be multiple relationships with Scripture. You mightn't realise it, but you've got a relationship with Scripture. The way that you think about Scripture will vary from seat to seat. Some of you are like, it's like your solid foundation. Others of you are like, it is so hard; like, it's just so hard. And I just want to note that that's the reality, and I don't want you to ever feel any shame around that. You know because the Bible is old, it's an old book, and it can feel really complicated and obscure. So if you struggle with it sometimes, shame's not gonna help you with that. We all struggle with it sometimes. In fact, I give my life to Jesus when I was like tiny, and I mean like properly give my life to Jesus. So say if one of your kids gives their lives to Jesus, don't you dare look down on it because they're young. I give my life to Jesus when I was three and a half years old. I saw him. He revealed himself to me. I have loved him all my days ever since, even though I've made an abundance of mistakes along the way. Um, And I am, on my school reports, this is what it always said about me, Charlotte is very conscientious conscientious, 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 which meant she's a try-hard. Basically, that's who I am. I cannot, I don't know how to do something without being really earnest about it. It's just, it's, it's my, one of my strengths and one of my greatest weaknesses, I'm conscientious. And so I like to do things well, you know, because I think that you should, like you just should. And so it was really difficult for me because I, here, here's Charlotte, painting a picture here, loves Jesus, right? knows that part of loving Jesus is getting to know him in his word, is super conscientious, and could not for the life of her get into a rhythm of Bible reading that stuck. Couldn't do it. And so throughout my teenage years, I was very, I'm passionately in love for Jesus, but you see my Bible reading, it was such a source of shame for me, because I'd read it for a little bit, and then I'd discard it. And then I feel so guilty. It's like, oh, you're here singing your songs. You haven't picked up that Bible in three weeks. This is my voice to me, not somebody else, my voice to me. I was like, and I just, my, my relationship with the Bible became very complicated because it was so littered and layered with shame. And then when I was, I can't remember exactly what age, 18, 19, 20, somewhere around there, I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I went home from the place I was, I was at a, at a camp. And I came home from that place, and I cannot explain to you, I had such a hunger for the word of the Lord, unlike anything that I had ever had before. And I didn't do that. The Spirit did that for me because I couldn't. And so, what about inviting the Spirit into your Bible reading? I realize that not only do some of you have a difficult history with Scripture, some of you probably just have had difficulty with reading. Maybe you struggle with dyslexia or uh, or just reading in general has always been hard for you and you're going to have to find new and different ways to, to work with scripture. Maybe you're going to need an audio Bible or, or maybe somebody could read scripture to you, but you're going to have to find other access points. I understand there are a myriad of things that can make the Bible difficult, but I also know this, this book is life. It's life. And the Spirit of God can help you with it. You don't have to do this by yourself. If you try to study scripture by yourself, it will be dry, it will be boring, it will be immensely hard work. You study it with the Spirit, some days it will still feel a bit hard and a bit dry and sometimes maybe even a bit boring. But there will be a new life to it unlike anything that you thought was possible because the Spirit wants to teach you. The Spirit's called the teacher. So Jesus calls the Spirit the teacher. And he's going to, Jesus says, he's going, don't worry, guys, I know I've been your teacher, but when I go, the Spirit's going to remind you about everything I've said to you. Like the Spirit can teach you through the word. And so anyway, all of that is a preface to say we're doing a Bible study, and I think it's a really good idea. We're going to do a Bible study, and I'm going to attempt to do a whole book, right? So I'm really glad that there's food provided at this event, because I'm going to attempt to do like a whole book in one sitting. And the reason I'm going to do a whole book in one sitting, don't worry, it's a very short book, 10 chapters, were are good, um, is because... Whenever you read scripture, oftentimes if you do like say Bible through a year or two or three years, because sometimes it takes that to get through it, or you maybe read the verse of the day on new version and then go back and read the chapter or something, it can, it can be very piecemealy for you. And for me, so we read something, the next day we read something else, the next day we read something else. And what happens sometimes when we read scripture that way is that we don't notice the big, I'm always talking about patterns here, aren't I? We don't notice the big patterns that are happening. And inside every book, there are patterns that form like kind of like keys to unlock another level. You know, like whenever you used to play your Game Boy and you unlocked another level, it was like, yes, I am my in the Game Boy. It's like when you read scripture, there are certain patterns that you'll notice that unlock another level of learning that you didn't have access to before. And so each book is like a piece of literary genius. And inside of them all, there are lots of different patterns and keys. So I want to suggest to you, if you've never done it before, to consider this in your Bible reading. Why not consider saying to the Spirit of the Lord, show me which book is really key for me right now where I am in my life. And then read it. And whenever, however long it takes you, read it. And when you're finished, go back to start and read it again. And whenever you've finished and you think there can't be possibly anything else in here I haven't seen before, go back to start and read that book again and then read it again and then read it again until you feel like the Lord says, we're ready to move on. Because when you start to read a book over and over and over again, you're going to notice, oh, hold on, there's something here that connects to this, that connects to that. You're not going to see that unless you repeat, read, repeat, read, repeat, read. So we're going to do a little, I'm going to do a little study with you and Esther to show you how this might look. Okay, so uh, some of you will know Esther really well. If you know the book of Esther really well, shuffle all of the information you've got about Esther right to the top, push it past your to-do lists and all your calendar items for this week, get it to the top of your brain. If you don't know anything about Esther, no sweat, I'm gonna tell you all the things, okay? And I'm gonna speak really fast because we've got lots to get through. So the book of Esther is set in a time when the Jewish people, God's people, are in exile. they've been taken over by foreign power. so basically what happened has happened is a foreign kingdom has come in and ripped them out of their homes, out of their spaces and places and brought them off to their kingdoms and they're now subject to a foreign power. and the book of Esther is set in the citadel of Susa in the kingdom of Persia, and the king at the time, the foreign king. Not the legitimate king of the Jewish people, but the foreign king is uh, Xerxes and his queen is called Vashti. Somebody needs to bring those names back if you're pregnant. What about I putting that in your baby list? We Xerxes. Xerxes, dinner's ready. Right? So we've got King Xerxes and we've got Queen Vashti on the throne. And the thing that I, that I want to bring to you today, now there are multiple ways to read any book. That's why the Bible never gets dull, because there's always a different way to read it. But one of the ways that you can read the book of Esther is via the feasts. Food's really important to God. It's one of the things him and I have in common. Food's really important to God. And in his story, feasts are actually really important. And in the book of Esther, feasts are super important. And what you'll find is the whole story of Esther, the the plot line of Esther, rises and falls and changes direction on feasts. So every time the story is changing direction or we're entering a new shift, you will see a couplet to a pair of feasts. And that will signal something about the direction that the story is going in. And so the story can be read and hung on these three couplets of feasts. There are other faces that happen in the book, but these three major couplets signify, oh, the story's about to change direction. This is a big pivot moment in the story, okay? So let me show you what it looks like. Whenever we open the book, we're going to open the book of Esther with a set of feasts. Can I just tell you my handwriting? Is absolutely terrible. So work with me here. Uh, okay. So what we're going to start with is, is a face, to, a couple of the faces at the start that are the faces of reality. And they're going to show us something about the reality of the human condition and the direction that the human story is going in. Because when you open the book of Esther, this is what it says in Esther 1 verse 4. For a full 180 days, he, that's King Xerxes, displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, feast number one. Lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. Verse 8 says this. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. And guys, we're not talking about slur. They were allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Feast one. Now, there's always a couplet of feasts when, when the story's moving in a direction. So, verse nine says Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So, these are the first two feasts. And what they do is they begin to indicate to the reader, the person stepping into this story from outside, the reality of the human condition and the reality of this story. Because while at first glance this may seem like a really good thing, you're like, this king's class it says he invited everyone from the least to the greatest, no favouritism here, class. And he's, he's so generous, isn't he? so generous, so kind, so generous. That's not what's happening here. Read what, read what it says. He says, in order to display the vast wealth of his kingdom, his splendor, his glory, his majesty, he calls a crowd. It's a performance. This whole feast is a performance. It's a come, people, all of you. That's why the least to the greatest are invited, because he wants to make sure everybody gets to see. Come, all of you, and see how brilliant I am so that you might see that I'm worthy of your worship. It's not a good feast, it's a terrible feast. I want you to also note the fact, he says, give them whatever they want to drink. I want you to imagine that the whole city's out and they're all drinking and they don't stop. What kind of chaos that is to send them into. People aren't wise when they're drunk. And so what is happening is is this feast that displays the honour and the majesty of this human king who wants to elevate himself above everybody else and show off. It's also a feeling of this hedonism. It says, with no restrictions, drink with no restrictions. That's such a key phrase in this story. We won't come under any restriction. We'll do what we want, when we want, how fast we want, how much we want. We'll grab, we'll take, no restrictions. We'll cast off Every sense of restraint, every sense of restriction, we'll do whatever we want. And that sounds class, getting to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, except it's not class. Because whenever we cast off all restriction, inevitably the direction of the story goes like this. And that's what we begin to see happen here. In the middle of this drunken crowd where everybody is just in excess and hedonism and self-worship and worship of the king, all of a sudden the king calls for the queen to come. He calls for the queen to come because you see he owns her too. Come parade. And I want you to think of what it must feel like to be a queen in that moment because sure, saying you're a queen makes you sound terribly powerful. She has no power here. The king says come and I want you to walk back and forth in front of this drunken crowd so that they can see how beautiful my queen is. How degrading. Because whenever there is a a sense, when humanity lives with no restriction, humanity is dehumanized. That's what happens. We don't become more human, we become less human. And there's a degradation that sets into the human cycle. And so we're shown this feast of reality, these feasts, because we're seeing the reality that the human condition is sliding down. The story of this city is sliding down. Everything is on the move downwards. Vashti declines as she is perfectly rightful to do in that scenario but the king has all the power and we're going to see how he uses his power because whenever he's powerful and she's weak he doesn't use his power on behalf of the weaker one he uses his power to dominate or the weaker one and now not only are the jewish people exiled vashti is exiled out of the kingdom she's dethroned she's dethroned because she won't play ball she won't play his game and so now she's left out in the cold too and so this story is starting to decline, but the story has not gone far enough down yet because it's about to go deeper, because remember, I said the Jewish people are caught up in this kind of society, this world. And among them were introduced to two key characters: Mordecai and uh, Esther, whose, whose name was also Hadassah. Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther are cousins, and they've had a really hard life. And so we see that their life has kind of been following this arc, too because uh, not only have they been exiled, so I want you to imagine that somebody comes into this beautiful borough of Craig Avon today and just rips you, your children, your parents, whatever, out of their homes and trails them off to a foreign land. I want you to imagine the trauma that sits inside of these people. So Mordecai and Esther have not only just experienced that, Esther's already had a really hard life because we're told she's an orphan. So we're not told how her parents died, but we know that they have died and that's immensely difficult for anyone who's lost their parents. Mordecai is painted very early on as an absolute hero because he has brought uh, Esther, who's his cousin, into his home and he's cared for her. And he seems to have taken real great delight in that. And so Mordecai and Esther have each other, but they're in this foreign land in exile and things are about to get even worse. Because now the king has no queen and he wants a queen. And how is he going to get a new queen? Well, him and his yes men, be really careful, guys, side note, be really careful. Will all your friends agree with you. Because you need a friend who's gonna tell you you're an idiot when you're an idiot. And this king has no people around him like that. So all these yes men who are just like trying to pump him up even further, they say, sure, this is what we'll do. We'll go around the land, we'll lift every attractive young virgin and we'll just bring them to the palace. We'll parade them in front of you, take your pick. Terrible. Now, when you read Esther, you could be really tempted to read it the wrong way and say, oh, lucky Esther. Esther was just a wee orphan and then she she gets entrance into the king's palace. That's not how this book's meant to be read. Because there's nothing good about this story. There's nothing good about this part of the story. Not only has Esther now been orphaned and exiled, but now she's been lifted from her home as a product of the society and taken off into If that happened today, if a king today went through the land and lifted every beautiful young virgin out of everybody's homes and took them to his palace, there would be a national outcry. It's despicable behavior, it's dark, it's evil. And Esther's caught up in the evil of the nation and she's pulled into this king's palace and of course the favor of the lord is on her so even there she's protected and elevated and she becomes the one who's who's taken in as queen but I want you to realize that being being a queen even remember queen Vashti it doesn't it doesn't mean what you think it means it's like you're still at the whim of a, a pretty psychotic king here so it's not a safe space Esther's not in a safe space her story's going down, 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 down. Even when she's throned, enthroned as queen, her story hasn't lifted. The story's not lifted because she, now she's at the mercy of a really, really unpredictable man. So it's not a safe space. The story's going down, 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 down. But it's gonna get worse. Guys, I'm a bundle of joy today, aren't I? It's gonna get worse. Because at the same time, while their story's going down, there's a man who is evil. If I was doing this in a kids' ministry talk, I would say, every time I say, Haman, you go boo. So Haman. Amen. Haman. Yeah, I did this one time before and they didn't stop booing the whole way. This is awful, absolutely awful. So Haman's a bad guy, right? I know, he's always one. It's always one. He's a bad guy, right? But he's making a rise because the king's taking a liking to Haman and Haman's making a rise. In fact, he makes a rise to second in the land. That's a pattern you're going to see all throughout scripture. Feel free to go for ignore me the rest of the time and go on a wee bunny trail of your own thinking about rises to second in the land because that's, that's a fun thing to think about right there. Haman rises to second in the land. He's above all the other nobles, so he's second in the land, really, to the king. Him's a bad, bad man. And because he's he's risen, the king says, "Well, people should bow down to you too." Well, him loves this. He's he's like let he's like living his best life. Everywhere he goes, everybody bows down. He's so so full of a sense of self-worth, his own majesty and power. Somebody won't bow down. Anybody remember who won't bow down? Mordecai. Mordecai, you're not my god. I'm not bowing. You're not. We've ever poured man. And Mordecai, I'm not bowing. You're not my god. I'm not bowing. He said, you're not my God, I'm not buying. He won't buy. And Haman is reaching. He is reaching. And it doesn't matter that everybody else will bow down because Mordecai won't bow down. He just, can't, he just cannot get past this. And he goes back to his yes men and yes women that he's got around him. Remember guys, if everybody around you won't tell you you're an idiot, you need to get new friends. So Haman's got a bunch of people around him who, who won't tell him he's an idiot when he's being an idiot. And he's like, Mordecai is really, really annoying me. What will I do? And they come up with this plan. They say, well, why would we just get rid of Mordecai? Mordecai's a Jew. Let's get rid of the whole people. Let's get rid of the whole people because one man won't bow when you walk past The level of evil in this story, guys, honestly, see if you find yourself saying the world's never been darker, you're wrong, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. The world's been dark since Genesis 3. This man's now willing to massacre an entire nation because one man from that nation, one man from that group will not bite him. He's like, class, great idea, let's do that. Women, children, gone, boom. So he's got the ear of the king. He says, it just need the king's permission. He goes to the king. And the king, this is the scary part. The king says, if it pleases, he says, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. That's uh, Esther 3, verse 9. And dispatches were sent by the couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, and children, all on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month. It's Crazy. The story's crazy and it's just getting worse, worse and worse and worse. I want to note something though that you might have missed that happens between these two occurrences. It's a little something that looks like a very, very, very small thing indeed, but you see the big things hang on the small things. And in the middle of it, Mordecai is sitting at the, at the king's gate. Now I want you to remember that this king is the one who is, who is now uh, illegitimately their king. And he is, he is wild in every sense of the word. And he's now taken his little cousin Esther and trailed her off into the palace. So, Mordecai, I mean, this Mordecai and this king shouldn't be mates. You know what I mean? should be no love lost between these two people. Mordecai's at the king's gates one day, and Nestor too, and he here's an assassination attempt that's being made by the king's servants on the king. Now, if that was me, <laughs> that's where you see the real Charlotte, if that was me, I'd be going ahead, lads. Good enough for him. Good enough for him. Mordecai's a man of integrity. Can I tell you, integrity changes the story every time. Your integrity matters far, far more than you or I will ever realize. Integrity is so important. Mordecai is a man of integrity and he won't have it. He won't have it. So he reports the assassination attempt and it's written down in this book called The Chronicles of the Kings. It's written down. And then the story moves on as if it didn't even matter. Nobody saw Mordecai do it really. You know, it's written down in this book, but it's not like Mordecai's prey is lifted up. Mordecai just goes back to the business of being a Jew trying to stay alive in an exiled country. But he keeps his integrity intact and that's something worth fighting for. So anyway, the story moves on. Now they find out that this story is just plummeting, 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 because now the, the Jews aren't just going to be exiled, they're going to be murdered. They're going to be it's mass murder. Mass murder is about to happen. If if the feasts stop here, guys, we are in deep sweat. This is trouble, trouble, trouble. But there's another set of feasts coming. And remember, when there's a couple of feasts coming, there's always a pivot in the story. Mordecai gets word to Esther and says, Esther, maybe you've been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. We can't let this slide. You're not going to be safe just because you're in the palace. You see, nobody in the palace knows Esther's a Jew. You're going to be safe in the palace. We've got to do something about this. Our integrity calls us to do something about this. What are you going to do, Esther? And so what's really interesting is in a book all about feasting, what does Esther do? Anybody know? Come on. What's the opposite of feasting? Fasts. Fasting's always countercultural. we should fast more. Fasting is good for us. It's really, really hard, but it's good for us. Fasting's always a countercultural action. And in that moment, Esther gets her people around her and she fasts. She says, Mordecai, you go fast, we'll fast and then we'll do something about this. So they fast and then we get to the next couplet of uh, of feasts. Thankfully the story's about the pivot. He is all ready for a pivot. I'm ready for a pivot pivot. I'm all ready for a pivot, right? Because here comes the Feast of Rescue. So Esther goes into the king and the king says, what do you want, Esther? And Esther invites him to a meal. So we're looking for banquets. That's what we're looking for. Uh, Then the king asked in Esther chapter five, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to the half of the kingdom, it will be yours. And she says, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with him and come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. Now, you can imagine Haman, right? Not only now is he the king's favourite second, the queen's favourite too. Me and, me and the big lad go to Esther's house for dinner. Class, right? Bring Haman at once the king said so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition that will be given you and what is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom it will be granted. And she says, my petition and request is this. If the king regards me with favor, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to another banquet that I'll prepare for them. Two banquets. Now I don't know what happened there. I don't know whether Esther had always planned to do two meals, because why not? Like two meals are better than one when you're asking for something big. Or whether she had asked him there, the king that day, and she was going to ask him to rescue them, but then kind of bottled it and didn't know, like I couldn't quite get the speech out and thought, I'll just ask him for dinner again tomorrow, we'll do it then, I'll do it then. I don't know. But either way, we've got a beautiful couplet of banquets and these feasts will become the feasts of rescue. So now Haman and the king are invited back to the second banquet, but a couple of things, very, very important things, are going to happen before that feast happens. It's really important that they're in the middle too, but that's an aside. Haman's delighted. He leaves the palace that night, all shoulders back, head up. Everybody's buying. Who does he bump into? Mordecai. Will Mordecai boy? Nope, not my God. I'm not buying. Haman is raging. He's raging. So he's got this decree that's been issued all throughout the land, right? All throughout the land that said on this certain day, everybody in the land It's going to turn on the Jews and annihilate them and they're not allowed to defend themselves. So it's this, the craze gone out. So he's already got this coming on this day that's been set, but it's not enough for him. He goes home raging about Mordecai. He gathers his yes people around him. He says, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And they're like, "You've you've got the king's blessing. He'll let you do whatever you want. I know what you do. Build a big pole. 75 feet, in fact, build a big pole outside the house, right? We'll build it tonight. We'll get it together, no problem, right? We'll nip the B&Q, we'll get the stuff, we'll have this pole built like that. We'll get, obviously there's no B&Q in the Bible, guys. Don't be going away saying Charlotte thinks there's a and q in the Bible. They build this big pole and he says, I know what we'll do, we'll get the king to say, agreed that we can impale Mordecai on the pole. We'll impale him on the pole, okay? So that happens, Him is like, class idea. They get the pole ready. And you're like, this is a disaster. It's an absolute disaster because he's going to go in the next morning and have Mordecai killed before Esther can get to the meal the next night to stop all of this chaos descending. It's an absolute disaster. The timing of this is terrible. Esther, you should have spoke up in the first feast. What's going on here? Except something else is happening that night. Well, Haman's off building this big pool. The king can't sleep. And because he can't sleep he gets a book of his chronicles to come out let read me the history of the stories of everything that's happened and as they read the history they get to this little story about this guy called mordecai who sat outside the king's gates one time and overheard about an assassination attempt and stopped it and the king's like wow what do we do for that dude and they're like nothing the king goes off to bed next morning he gets up haman rocks up delighted his big poles all ready to go once mordecai impaled on it goes into the king and he's like to the king all ready to speak, but the king speaks first and the king says, Haman, what should I do for someone that I want to honor now? Haman, big scares himself, Thinks, Well, he's obviously talking about me, so what would I like? And he comes up with this great plan let's get a horse let's put the person on the horse let's get somebody to parade him through the street let them say this is the man that the king desires to honor so that'll show mordecai let's do that right so he offers a suggestion to the king and you can just you can feel the tension in the air and the the soundtrack behind the story start to rise as the king goes great you go do that for mordecai and he would say no it's like it's so brilliant and so here's Haman Haman knows there's no chance now Mordecai's going on that pole because now the king has Haman leading him through the streets on the back of his horse shouting this is the one that the king desires to honour like, can you, can you, I bet he did it more like this this is the one that the king desires to honour <laughs> this is the one it's <laughs> absolutely class anyway so Mordecai is elevated and he's rescued you see God's timing is he's never too late he was, was never too late with his rescue Anyway, we need to move on. So Mordecai is rescued, but the people are still in trouble. So now we've got this next feast coming. And so Haman and the king, they rock up to the second feast that night. And again, the king says, like, what do you want me to do? How can I, how can I help? Uh, and, and Queen Esther says this. She says, I wouldn't bother you, king, if my people were just going to be sold into slavery. I wouldn't even bother you. But actually, there's a plot to kill all of my people. And she's revealing her identity. There's a plot to kill all of my people and I really, really need your help. Because an evil person has risen up to kill all of my people. Well, the king's furious and he's like, who is this evil person? Have you ever been more blind? Like he signed the decree. Anyway, never more. Never more blind. He says, who is this evil person? And she goes, da, 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 the room goes, da, 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 come on, do it with me, da, da, (laughs) da. It's this evil one, Haman. And the king's like, Haman, you know? And so the king storms out raging and Haman's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. So he flings himself on Esther, seeking for mercy. The king comes back in sees what's happening totally reads the room wrong like he reads the room wrong completely and says you trying to molest the king the queen it's like right off of his head kind of like you know awesome under style what are we going to do and then somebody says this what are we going to do so just as the king returns he sees him falling on the couch will you molest the queen as soon as the word left the king's mouth um, they covered Haman's face and then Harbona one of the eunuchs attending the king said a pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled him, and on the pole, he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's fury subsided. And all of a sudden, what we're beginning to see is the story is changing direction. It's starting to move this way, because we've got Mordecai, who's now being honored, and we've got the Jews that are now starting to be rescued, and there's more of a rescue to come, because Okay, we've got Mordecai's safe, Haman's sorted, but there's still this decree and the king can't take back a decree he's written. And so in a day that's coming up, all of the nations around will all light on the Jews and they're not allowed to defend themselves and they'll annihilate them unless something can be done. And so the king says, listen, Mordecai, Esther, do whatever you see fit, I'll sign off on it that can help. And so they write this new decree And the decree says that on that day, the Jews can defend themselves. And this is what happens, this is where we get to our our next set of feasts. And these are feasts of rejoicing, because there's two sets of feasts coming that show that a new season is emerging for these people. Uh, So they send this decree out, it goes out by all of the couriers, all of the couriers take the decree out, and it says this in Esther 8, when the people receive the news. Now remember, these people thought they were dead ducks in the water. Nothing can be done. And then they get this news. No, you can defend yourself. This is like. This, is, this was the most impossible outcome ever for these people. And this is what it says in Esther eight seventeen. In every province, in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of the other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. So this is the first feast. They start to rejoice and celebrate about the fact that they can defend themselves. Then the dreaded day comes. And still, like, you still don't know exactly how this is going to pan out. But the reality is the Lord supernaturally empowers these people to defend themselves and they're absolutely, totally, utterly victorious. And it says this after the victory is won and they end up not with less but with more than what they started with in Esther 9 verse 18. The Jews and Susans, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th and then on the 15th they rested and they made it a day of feasting and joy. And that feast is still celebrated in the Jewish calendar to this moment because this was a feast of rejoicing because the story had turned around, because of a rescue that had been enacted. But the thing about this Feast of Rejoicing is it propelled them into a different season and a different day, because now Mordecai is in a position of power, raised to the second in the nation. You know, it's really important that. Raised to the second in the nation, and it says this of him, the very last verses say this, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellows because he worked for the good of his people, and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So you see, all of a sudden now, Mordecai is not the underdog. Mordecai is in a position of power and he's using that power to bless the nation as all God's people always should with their power. When you're given your power... It is not so that you can self-elevate. It's so that you can get lower than you have ever been and serve the nation that has been entrusted to your keep and to your care, the family that's been entrusted to your keep and your care, the job or the team that, you, that work for you entrusted to your keep and your care. When you're given power, you're given it, giving it so that you can get lower than you possibly have ever been before and serve those people. That's why power is given and Mordecai uses it well. And so the story that started like this, like it couldn't get any worse. Like it ends and it couldn't get any better. And I want to remind you that this story is your story. This, this story, this, See, the reason the Bible's not obscure is because the stories in the Bible are not just biblical stories, they're your story. We've been grafted into this story. And what's really interesting about scripture is this. Every little story carries the DNA of the big story. So just like in your cells today, each one of your cells carries the DNA of your body of your bigger, larger body, you know. Each little cell carries the DNA. Each story carries the DNA of the big story that you're caught up in. Because, you see, the story of Scripture is held together in these same feasts. It's all throughout Scripture. Let me show you one way that you can track this. You can track it a million ways. Let me show you one pathway you can track this through. You can track it through a couple of words. Because the, the Feast of Reality, anybody guess where the Feast of Reality is in Scripture? the very first feast where we see it all start to go wrong. Where is it in? The garden. Right at the very, very start, we have a feast of reality in the garden. And it says this in Genesis 3. It says uh, that the woman saw that the food was good to look at. And it says, there's there's this couplet of words, she took and she gave. She took. And she gave. Now, if you want to track a word all the way through scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the only way you can do it is via the Greek. So the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but they're really early translations of Greek, uh, Greek Old Testament. So if you want to see a word track the whole way from Genesis to Revelation, because the whole story ties together, you've got to do it through the Greek. And so when you go back and you look at those two words, the woman took and then she gave. They're the Greek words lambano, took. Everybody say lambano. Lambano, and she gave, didome. Everybody said Didomi. Didomi. She took and she gave. It's an interesting phrase, don't you think? She took and she gave. It's the feast of reality. And from that moment on, the story starts to plummet. And you and I are caught in the plummet. And every time you see death or darkness is because you're caught in the plummet of the story. And if that was the only feast that ever happened, we'd have been in real, real trouble. But there's another feast coming. You find it in the book of Matthew. Well, you find it in a couple of Gospels. So let me show you it in Matthew. In Matthew, Jesus sits around a table with his disciples. I'll read it to you. I'll read it. He sits around the table with his disciples. And it says this in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took lumbano. Jesus took lumbano, the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave didomai. He gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. Then he took Lambano, the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them because the story is about to pivot, you see. Story keeps going like this. We're lost forever. Story is about to pivot on a feast because this is the feast of rescue that comes into the story. When Jesus takes and gives, it's far more significant than any of us realize because it's signaling to us in the macro story that the story is about to pivot. The interesting thing about these stories at this point is this is where they separate. Because Jesus has come to fulfill the story, but he's also come to reverse it. And sometimes there are moments of reversal in the macro story inside the micro story. Because at this point, in order for the rescue to happen, somebody had to die and that person was Haman. Haman died. So at this point in the story of rescue, Haman died. So we're fully expecting someone to die at this point in the story of rescue too. The thing about this is, in the first story, Haman's the guilty one and he dies for his own guilt. But in this story, that's not what's going to happen. In fact, the guilty's going to go free and the sinless, spotless lamb of God is going to die for our guilt. It's a reversal of the story. The guilty one's not going to die, the innocent one is. And what's really interesting when you begin to track the Greek between these two moments is you're going to see the same words. So here it says, let me read it to you again. Here it says, uh, whenever we read about that moment in Esther, it says this. In Esther 7, it says, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, Esther 7 verse 9, attending the king said, a pole, right? I want you to note that word, a pole. This is where English gets tricky and where the Greek's really helpful. A pole reaching to the height of 75 cubits stands by Haman's house. He'd set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help him. And the king said, impale. I want you to notice that word. Again, tricky because it's in English. Impale him on it. It's interesting because in the Greek, those two words are going to make an appearance around this death as well, the death of Jesus. Because the word there, for, um, the word there let's go for the word impale first. The word therefore, impale is the Greek word staru. And whenever we get to that moment in Luke where we think we know the story, the story story so far has been that the guilty are meant to die and the innocent go free. So we think we know what's going to happen at that point, at the big pivot point, that word's going to come up again. This is what it says in Luke 23, verse 20. Wanting to release Jesus, this is when he's trying to send Barabbas to death because Barabbas is guilty. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him crucify him guess what the word is Staru. the word there is staru, which is the same greek word used here when haman is impaled Staru. crucify him crucify him the script is being flipped haman is impaled on a pole the word for pole in the greek is sulon whenever you get to acts this is what you're going to hear peter say Inspired by the Spirit, Peter says in Mm -hmm. Acts five, verse twenty nine, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross, it says in the English. It's not always translated this way, by the way. But but in that instance the word cross is the word Zulon, which is the same word that's used for pole with Haman. It's the big reverse. Because the reality is, when we read this story, we think we're Mordecai. We're not Mordecai, we're Haman. I'm Haman. I am guilty as charged and deserving of death. But there's one greater who comes and his rescue looks different than any other human rescue because his rescue comes for the death of the innocent, not the death of the guilty. So that I, the guilty, so that you, the guilty, can go free. And then the story, of course, starts to rise. And what you're going to see, well, you can finish it in a million places, but post the crucifixion, there's multiple places where you can finish this story. But since we're going with, he took Columbano and he gave, let's carry on there. On a beach, there's a boy who, well, fully grown man, but he's acted like a boy, He's rejected the one who died in this place. He's betrayed him in a million different ways and it looks like his story is over. And then a resurrected Jesus stands on the beach in the Gospel of John. And he makes breakfast for this man, Paul Peter. And it says Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And the same with the fish. And then he looks Peter in the eye and he says, go feed my sheep. I'm elevating you in the kingdom so that you can serve the people. It's the end of the story. Well, it's not really because there's loads more after that. And I just want to say these things to you. Life can feel very out of control sometimes. And there's no doubt in my mind that there is darkness that has harmed you and hurt you in your story. Because the reality of the human condition means that we're marked by that pain. But I want to remember who you are. I want you to remember what story you're in. And I want you to remember that the rescue is always exactly when it needs to be. And that the end of the story is always like this, it's always like this. I will bang on about this till the day that I die over and over and over again, because you need to know that you are caught up in a glorious story that is so much bigger and brighter and braver and more beautiful than you could ever, 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 ever ever dream. And I don't know where you find yourself, but I know this. If you love Jesus and you have given your life to him, you find yourself caught up in this story. And it's got a great ending. It's got a great ending. And that, my friends, is the book of Esther.